Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. There is a grammatical phenomenon that happens in this week's parsha in the very first sentence. Normally, when the Torah tells us that God is going to speak to Moses or to Abraham or to Aaron, and then they're going to speak to the Israelite people, it uses the word Vayedaber Adonai Moshe Lemor. But in this one case, in this parasha, the word that's used is Emor. Not Lemor, not Vayedaber, but Emor. Now, when you start to translate the word Emor, you get into a, a role of semantics where you start to unpeel the difference between what it is to say and to speak and to communicate, which I'm sure we could have a really interesting intellectual conversation about the nuances and differences of all of those words, but in essence, they mean the same thing. But do they always? Sometimes what we say and what we speak and how we act has implication. And the words that are said and spoken and words that are said and not spoken can have different impact and meaning just the same. I share the beginning of the Parsha with you today because if ever there was a concept that I think has been put under the microscope and been reevaluated in our Constitution, in our world today, and and trying to evaluate between the differences of what American law and Jewish law has to say, it is the very notion of speech. The freedom connected to speech and the words in which we say. I'm gonna give you a handful of examples of where the issue of freedom of speech and Judaism, and in particular support for Israel, has had the rubber hit the road, so to speak. The first happened in 2010 when Michael Oren, then ambassador from Israel to the United States of America, was speaking at the University of California, and he was heckled so loudly by disruptive students who were fiercely against Israel's position of what they called occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, even though Gaza has been unoccupied since 2005, I believe it is, that they didn't provide the then ambassador any opportunity to speak, because literally every time as he spoke in front of the microphone, there was such a large gaggle of hecklers and people interrupting that he could not say a word. Now, the same phenomenon has happened even just a few months ago to the likes of Moshe Halbertal, who was speaking at the University of Minnesota, and Nir Barkat, who is the mayor of Jerusalem, an entrepreneur and a great leader, was not afforded an opportunity in an academic setting to speak just the same. And I have to tell you that as a fierce Zionist, I get so frustrated when these people representing a particular view of Israel 
moderates, centrists, elected officials in many cases, or appointed officials, are given an opportunity to share their mind and then they are stopped because there are groups on either side of the idol, I don't want to define them as left or right, but on either side, who just inhibit them from even being heard. And that's wrong. And it's very problematic for me. But, and what I hope will be an exercise of intellectual honesty with all of you, I have to tell you about a case that was similar in nature, but very bothersome in a different way. And it was a case from when I was working at the Jewish Theological Seminary, which shares a campus for all intents and purposes with Columbia University and Barnard on Morningside Heights. And at the time, a particular group within Columbia University invited then-president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, to come and speak at Columbia. Now, for those of you who don't know, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was one of these fiercely anti-Israel, Holocaust-denying, anti-Jewish people who said horrible, horrible things about the country of Israel, the Jewish people, and many others for that fact. And I was plenty fine with those groups that were protesting Ahmadinejad coming to Colombia. Now, I want to be incredibly clear. For those of you who are guests here and might not know me and my political views or my personal views when it comes to America or Israel, in no way could I even tickle the idea of equating the likes of Nir Barkat or Moshe Habertal, who is an ethicist who wrote the Code of Ethics for the Israeli Defense Forces, or Michael Oren with that of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. There's no way they even fit into the same category. So don't take that road as I'm sharing this point with you. I'm sharing it on a meta level, on a much higher level of what is this notion of freedom of speech? And how was it that Lee Bollinger, who was the president of Columbia University, decided to welcome Ahmadinejad? Because ultimately, he was the one who got tremendous pushback on this concept. He was the one who said, how could such an open, Ivy League, pluralistic institution invite such a mind to come and speak? So Bollinger decided that he would not stifle freedom of speech that in fact he would celebrate freedom of speech. And he decided to attend the lecture in which Ahmadinejad gave, and he decided to address the lecture at the beginning. And Lee Bollinger, president of Columbia, said the following. This was in 2007, I believe it was. He says, Mr. Ahmadinejad, in December of 2005, on state television broadcast, you, the president of Iran described the Holocaust as a fabricated legend. One year later, you held a two-day conference, specially held for Holocaust deniers. For the illiterate and the ignorant, this is dangerous propaganda. But when you come to a place like this, like Columbia University, this quite simply just makes you ridiculous. You are either brazenly provocative or astonishingly uneducated. Your absurd comments, Mr. Ahmadinejad, about the debate over the Holocaust both defy historical truth and make all of us who continue to fear humanity's capacity for evil shudder at the closure of this memory, which is always virtue's first line of defense. Will you, President Ahmadinejad, cease this outrage? 
Now, I have to tell you that as opposed as I was to Ahmadinejad speaking at Columbia is how proud I was of Lee Bollinger actually phrasing these questions to him and putting it out there. And to share myself with you for a minute, I will tell you that I thought it was one of the most beautiful moments to combat the issue of freedom of speech with the most potent weapon of all, and that is freedom of speech. That Lee Bollinger used his right in his university to share what was on his mind and to push back on what was the ludicrous, absurd views of Ahmadinejad, but not to stifle his voice. But then came the very compelling argument of who was a UN ambassador at the time under the Bush presidency, John Bolton, who complained to Bollinger with a very legitimate argument and said, how dare you give this man a platform in the first place? Do you realize how much attention has been garnered now by allowing him to come and speak at Columbia and not prohibiting him to come and speak at Columbia? Do you realize now that he has gained more momentum and more notoriety? To which Bollinger says, he's speaking at the United Nations, he's been giving interviews at CNN and Fox and CBS, why should this be any different? Now to be honest with you, this is a great case of where the Talmud would say teku, meaning I can hear both sides of those arguments very clearly. I might have some passion and prejudice in this case that affects me to come down on one side or the other, but both of them make compelling and legitimate arguments. So what does the Torah tell us to do when it comes to the issue of freedom of speech? I bring all of this up with you because the topic du jour in the Jewish world this week and perhaps month is the topic of one Linda Sarsour. For those of you who aren't familiar with Linda Sarsour, she identifies herself as a Palestinian American, born to Palestinian parents, but born in Brooklyn and raised in Brooklyn. She proudly wears a hijab as is part of her Muslim tradition, and she has been a fierce critic of many pro-Israel movements, including the ZOA, but more particularly, she's been a proud supporter of BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, She's even tweeted before that she finds the whole notion of Zionism wildly creepy. And she's even said that people who are feminists and Zionists can't jive together, that they can't live in the same world. One has to exclude the other. Meanwhile, she's been very supportive of the notion of having Sharia law, because she says that Sharia law would mean that none of us would have credit card debt or mortgage rates, it would all be interest-free. But it ignores the fact that it's a society under Sharia law that allows us to abuse women or allows a woman to count as half of the vote as a man. These things seem to be missing. Now, to complicate the matters on Linda Sarsour, someone who I've personally had interaction and interface with, which I'll describe in just a moment, this is a person who has been strongly identified as a leader and liberal movements. Now I say the liberal movements for this particular reason, and I don't want all of you to get your scalpels out with your dissecting devices to start on going through what it is to be liberal or conservative and where Jews fall. I share this with you for the simple sociological fact 
that Jewish people as a whole fall into the liberal world, as a whole. That doesn't mean that we're not conservative, some of us, and it doesn't mean that we don't have some conservative views or that we don't melt. But the overwhelming majority of these issues that have to do with equality in particular fall into that court where many a Jew typically finds itself and votes. Not maybe on all issues, but on some issues. And again, I'm talking from 50,000 feet, not from 5,000 feet. Linda Sarsour, in that role, was one of the leaders of the Women's March that happened the day after the inauguration on January 21st. Many of the other leaders in that march were Jewish leaders, some even rabbis. So what happens when these two worlds collide? The world of what we believe in in our liberal approach and views, and views being led by another person that we find disdainful. It could lead us to be in a world of no man's land, a place where we can't find any home or any comfort. To complicate the matter twofold, Linda Sarsour has proudly stood with Hamas operatives, believes in the notion of armed resistance, and won't denounce terrorism as a form of resisting against Israel. In fact, when I went head to head with Linda Sarsour was over issues of what Hamas supports terrorism. And she called me out publicly because I believe if you're supportive of Hamas, which has in its charter, not only the eradication of the Jewish state, but of Jewish people. That means living in Italy, living in France, and living in Chicago. That there's a problem in supporting it in its charter. Now she stands proudly with Hamas and many of its terrorist operatives and some of the good things in which she claims it does. But now to complicate the matter even more, that during the midst of what was an onslaught of anti-Semitic activities and bomb threats in this country, there were some cemeteries that were desecrated, one in particular, the first of which was in St. Louis, Missouri. And after that cemetery was desecrated, it was Linda Sarsour who mobilized her troops and resources and led a campaign that in the matter of 72 hours raised over $100,000 for the restoration of a solely Jewish cemetery, saying that in a place where they desecrate Jewish cemeteries, is a place where they desecrate the other, and we can't allow that. So what do we do in such a situation where someone clearly is doing an act that if anyone else were to look at that act solely through the only prism of that particular act, we would celebrate it in a moment of unity. But when we combine it with other issues and acts, it becomes problematic. So here's the kicker of why this has been the issue du jour in the last weeks of the Jewish people. Linda Sarsour was one of the invited guests, a speaker, at CUNY, City University of New York's graduation just this coming week. And there is a whole host of people that are celebrating her moment of freedom of speech and another whole group of people who say, how dare we have her on that dais representing these views of which we're not in alignment with. So what do we do? What do we do if we stand for some things and not for others? Because if any of you have a problem with her supporting the restoration after vandalism of a Jewish cemetery, I'd like to try and understand where you're standing with, because I don't get it. Because she did not give those funds from her own. She got other people of all backgrounds and stripes and denominations to stand with us, something that I could celebrate. But when it comes to standing with Hamas operatives, 
I don't get it. So what do we do? It's no different, and I'm going to share you know, openly a piece of my political chest with all of you, not for a moment of judgment, but just in a moment of honesty to give some color. When it comes to someone like Bernie Sanders, who was running for president, who said some things that were very problematic for me when it came to the issue of Israel that I could not support or stand with, but said some things when it came to the issue of public education and affording colleges for all people that I celebrate. What do we do? What do we do in these cases where the two seem to be at loggerheads, one with the next? Does Judaism tell us to stifle free speech or does it tell us to celebrate free speech? The same issue came to a head just this week when Ann Coulter, a very conservative columnist, was invited to speak and then the invitation was rescinded because of fierce protest at University of California in Berkeley because she was going to speak and people were afraid of things that she was going to say that were problematic, hurtful, rude, and dismissive. And Bernie Sanders happened to say a very powerful line in response to those who were inhibiting her opportunity to share her mind. He said, are you really afraid of her ideas? Are you afraid so much of her ideas that if she shares them, it will infect everyone else, that this is the way to believe? Don't you have a belief and a passion of your ideas? Now, I don't know this to be the case, but Sanders might have that opinion based on the way he was raised as a Jew. Because Judaism says something very similar. One of my favorite cases in the Talmud is the case and story of Tanor Shalachnai, of a conversation that talks about something we talk about in the parsha, that which is pure and that which is impure something we can use and something we can't use. And the rabbis and Rabbi Eliezer get into a heated debate as to who owns the truth on whether or not a particular item is accessible for use. It's kind of the notion, if we put it into modern times, as to whether it's okay to drive to shul or not on Shabbat if we're only driving to shul. Where some people would say, if I can't drive to shul, then I can't be part of my community, and I can't daven, and I can't hear the Torah reading. And other people say, if you drive to shul, there's no sense in listening to a Torah in which you defy its very laws. So of those two arguments, who owns the truth? What does God want from us? And what does the text say when these people go back and forth trying to say who owns it? Lo he. It's not in heavens as if there is one absolute truth. It's up to us in a world of multiple voices and multiple truths. And this is something in which we absolutely celebrate. Judaism never looks to stifle another voice. Judaism celebrates the notion of the dissent. It celebrates the notion of the other. It celebrates the voice, even that which we find abhorrent. And if you don't believe me, all you need to do is open up a page of the Talmud and you'll be thick into meaningful and rich debate. If you don't believe me that that's what Judaism says, then come to any one of a board meeting in any Jewish organization, and you will find yourself hip deep and point and counterpoint, sometimes over the most meaningless topics. And if you still don't believe me, then come to my house for Thanksgiving dinner. This is what we do as Jews. But at what point do we say to somebody, you can't talk. 
you have no voice. Even the Sanhedrin, the ancient court, would tell the youngest members of the court, not only should you speak, but you speak first so that you are not intimidated or swayed by the older members of the court and what they might have to say. Again, Chazal, our rabbis of old, reminding us that we not only value speech, we don't want our speech to be inhibited by any other society. And even though we might find speech upsetting, frustrating, and even in cases abhorrent, do we celebrate it? Do we make space for it? Is the best way to address the issue of Linda Sarsour speaking at CUNY graduation to have ourselves speech in which we condemn that which is being done or to stop her from being speaking in the first place, from her word being offered. Now Rabbi Friedman and I were talking about this very topic and he brings up a very powerful point, which is when it comes to graduation versus a traditional speech or just an open speech or lecture like Ahmadinejad had in the middle of November, graduation represents often the values of an institution. And it also represents the fact that the entirety of its schools come to graduation. If Ahmadinejad is speaking and you don't want to go, you don't go. But in the case of graduation, faculty and all students attend. And there it might be foisted upon you, and that might add to the complexity of what we do in these moments. This whole notion of what to do with speech is something that is so very complicated. Because speech is what leads us to healthy growth, communication, love, and a deepening sense of what it is to be in relationship. And it is the same speech that can undo all of those things. When we gather in this room on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and we say on Yom Kippur the al Khait prayers, the prayers for which we have sinned, the overwhelming majority of those sins have to do with sins of speech. They're not only about the actions in which we've done or the thoughts in which we've conceived, they're about the way in which we spoke one to the other. And that is what we seek forgiveness from, from God. So while indeed we might have a freedom of speech, it doesn't mean that we are free to say whatever we feel even though it could cause others pain and that there is no recourse or remorse when those things indeed happen. As a person who is passionately opposed to this entire notion that is living in the world today of trigger warnings, perhaps all of us need to learn a little bit to thicken our skin, to thicken our skin to those things which are not so appealing and not so appetizing to us but to allow them to be heard. But at that very same time, perhaps what we need to do is to A, be a little bit more deferential in our speech, and B, create opportunity to combat the speech in which we find abhorrent with speech in which we believe in to be true and right, ethical, moral, and the proper voice. No different than Lee Bollinger did by choosing how he would embrace the notion of free speech with his freedom of speech. Perhaps, perhaps this notion of all the sins that we commit and we remind ourselves of on Yom Kippur that are related to speech, perhaps we're making one more when we inhibit others from speaking 
as opposed to standing for what we believe in with our right to speak. Perhaps that's the best antidote of all. Not only to speak back with passion, but with substance. Because as a good friend told me, truth is the very best disinfectant of all. Ultimately, we as listeners, like in the case of Shammai or Hillel, or the case of Eliezer and the sages, we decide what we're going to follow. That's why we celebrate a cultivated mind, a nuanced ear, and the concept of education. Because we choose what is right and what is moral. How can we do that if we don't hear the whole story? This topic is one that will continue to challenge our country, to challenge the Jewish people, to challenge all of us in this very wiggly path that we take called morality, ethics, and values. If it were oh so easy, we would sprinkle some of that Jewish dust on it and say, this is what we do and move forward. I wish it were that easy. These cases, like the case of Ahmadinejad and Linda Sarsour and others that come into the real debate of what it is that we believe and celebrate and what it is we have problems with, calls into our response, which might allow such a behavior, but enforce us to behave in an other way, like those donors who choose not to celebrate or to make donations to institutions that bring such speakers in. Another expression of our values. These are the moments in Judaism that don't call for the one plus one equals two. These are tantamount to adding fractions and integers and dealing with all different types of shapes and sizes at the same time. A very detailed science that's not always perfect and accurate, but calls for our very best. This is what the Parsha told us when it said to speak, using that anomaly in Amor instead of Vedaber to remind us of the different ways in which we communicate and the different ways in which it's heard. It not only applies to the political cases, it applies to the cases in our lives too. May it remind all of us how to use our ears, our mouths, our hearts, and our souls. Amen.